Hi, and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off. We are Katie and Beth, and we are here to help you get into PA school and then to survive PA school. We are so excited to bring you today's episode. Today, we have a special guest. Our guest today is Elise Fosnight. She's an amazing PA. She's a personal friend, and she has done something that most PAs dream about. She's opened her own practice. So today we're going to talk about her journey to PA school, how she got interested in her unique specialty, and then how she became the owner of her own practice. So welcome, Elise. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am super excited to be here tonight. We are too. We are too. We're super excited. And our listeners, uh, we've been kind of dropping hints that you're coming on for weeks now, and so they're super excited to hear you too. Uh, we love to hear about PAs and different specialties, and so you are kind of what we really love to hear about, successful PAs that are pushing our profession into the next uh, decade. So really quick, we love to hear about PA's background. So um, how did you, how was like your path to PA school? When did you decide you want to be a PA? What type of programs did you apply to? And then how did you eventually decide on the school that you went to? Um, Absolutely. So no one had ever mentioned to me about being a PA ever. I loved medicine, but a little interesting fact, and I think you probably remember this, Beth. I had Stevens-Johnson syndrome when I was nine Mm -hmm. um, from an allergic reaction to penicillin. So, you know, I think that for some people, right, that's going to be some medical trauma, PTSD, like you don't do anything medical. For me, it was really empowering. I loved the dynamic. I loved the, the pediatrician that would come in and he'd sit on my bed and we would play with Play-Doh and it was just, it was just so much fun. And I remember having that connection with him and going, gosh, I really want to help people. That was really what I do. So from the beginning, medicine was always in my wheelhouse. And so doctor, 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 right? Like that was my goal. That was my dream. And nobody ever, like I said, told me any difference. I think because I was so bullheaded about it. (laughs) I'm I'm like half German. So like it comes really (laughs) And, uh, and so, um, at, right out of the gate, when I went to undergrad at Brevard College, like again, medicine, health studies, I got a bachelor's of arts and in health science studies and a minor in chemistry. I had applied to medical schools. I applied to 13 medical schools and, um, didn't get into anyone. And I thought, well, screw this. I'm still going to apply. So I'd heard about Caribbean medical schools and applied to, the, uh, to one of them and got in. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, finally, like, I'm going to do this. And I think at some point, you know, like I was getting all these signs, like you're not supposed to go to Shadow East, like you're not supposed to go this route. Um, so I went to a year of medical school, and I think a lot of people don't know that about my background. And I hated every minute of it, hated it. I went to a small liberal arts school at Brevard College, and that was where everybody was with each other. It would, you know, like Elise, like can we study, can we work together. My professors were always like, let's make sure that, you know, you understand the material totally. And we were all studying together, right? And it was very competitive. And listen, I'm competitive, but I'm mostly competitive with myself um, versus other people. And so, like, and for me, I talk out loud. That's how I study. Like, that's just, that's my learning style. And so I went for a whole year. And again, nobody wanted to study with me. It was very isolating. Um, this was kind of my first time away from, from home. Um, and so a year in, I made a really tough decision to, to go ahead and withdraw and just go, okay, maybe this really isn't for me. I need to do something else. A friend of mine from Bernard College had said, Elise, you know, she was in banking. <laughs> and she was like, well, you want to get into banking? You know, I think you would be really good at it. Um, again, you have the leadership skills and whatever else. And I was like, well, I don't know what to do at this moment. So, yes, I, I'll go ahead and do that. The funny story is um, our local bank, it was Wachovia at the time, and they had a teller position. I was like, okay, I got to start somewhere, right? 
So I applied for the position and I got to uh, do the whole testing phase of it. I had to go over to Asheville um, and take the test. And so I finished the test. So I was like, I rocked it. Like, I felt really good about it. I was out. Everybody's getting called back. And then I hear this, um, at least last night, at least last night, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, something's wrong. I just, like, failed it. What happened? So they pull me back to this room with two other people. Like the test um, giver, whatever else. Yeah, anybody yeah. else has taken the test, and they said we have we have good news and bad news. Here I am. I'm just like you know withdrawn from medical school. Nobody's gonna take me. What am I gonna do? And so she said, okay. Well, the bad news is you failed the test. And I was like, okay, this is good news. What is the good news out of this? And she said you answered all the questions like a teller manager would answer the questions. So we want to offer you a teller manager position, not just a teller position. I was like, oh. <laughs> warm and fuzzy about it. I didn't get a lot of passion out of it. But nine months in, I thought, this is not, this is not for me. So I started digging around, like, what are my other options? Like, should I be a drug rep? Should I be some sort of, like, you know, medical science liaison? Like, what are, what are my options here? Somebody had said, at least Jimmy thought about, you know, a PA. And again, I kind of had heard about PAs, but again, nobody really gave me any information about it. And one of my mom's um, healthcare providers that Judge the Works with was a PA. So, like, it's just kind of interesting how, like, it was sprinkled around me, but I wasn't just opened up yeah. to it. And so I sat down and talked to her, and I was like, oh, this feels good. Maybe this is what I should do. There's still hope for me to get into medicine. So I had to take two classes to get into PA school. It was a medical terminology class. How funny, like, something very basic. And then I had to take some other biochemistry class or something like that. And so I took those classes at a local community college and started looking at applying to different places. So my husband and my brother and my brother-in-law, all of my husband's um, kind of family had all are kind of from Kentucky. My brother went to UK, my brother-in-law went to UK, my father-in-law went to UK. And I was like, okay, you know, let's look into, let's look into this program. So as you know, because that's where Beth and I met, was at the University of Kentucky's PA school, um, the UK's program starts in January. So I had a chance to apply early before all the other programs. So like at Duke and Wake Forest, I had looked at at the time, because there was only four PA schools in the state of North Carolina when I had applied, gosh, 13 years ago. Oh my goodness. It's and crazy so, to think that we're dating ourselves, but yes. <laughs> yeah. I actually um, put my application in the day before we got married, and oh, we, we went on our honeymoon. Yeah, because I thought, okay, you know, Kentucky or whatever else, and I guess I've helped in. I've got other opportunities. But on our honeymoon, we got back. Sean and I had an interview. Had an interview, what was it, like August, September. And Beth, I believe that you were in my interview team. I, was, <laughs> I really so think cool. So I did the interview. Again, I felt like pretty good about it. Um, and I, yeah, and you know, got a call later that we, you know, I had gotten accepted. Wait, uh, you got a call? I got a letter in the mail that I had to wait for. Oh, I got a call. I had to wait for a letter in the mail. It was that green corduroy jacket. <laughs> You know, I tell people all the time that when you are looking for things that are your passion and that fits right, right? Like I, tr I was like, I was trying to jump through all of these hoops and yeah, climb through yeah. everything to try to get into medical school. And not saying that PA school is easy to get into. I know me is my saying that, but it was just very interesting how everything felt so good with the application and the interview process and getting into PA school and the University of Kentucky PA's program was very similar to the experience that I had at Brevard. It was a loving and inviting, and it wasn't like, you know, we look to the left and look to the right, and only one of you will be here by the end of graduation. That was not it at all. 
and I, I loved our class. Like there was such camaraderie and there was such support. Like I just, I don't know. I loved it. So for me, I really felt like that was, that was it. And again, not that things came easy, whatever else, but I think when it's, you're on that right path, you get the energy and you get all of the support, like through that whole process because you're on that right path. So for me, um, I, it was just an interesting route of getting into, into PA school. So but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. almost like the universe was putting you in this place and saying, no lease, no lease, no lease. And you were like, I'm still going to do it because I'm hard-headed and then do this. And then finally you started listening to what the universe is telling you. And then you're like, wait, this is the way it's supposed to be. This, I feel like I'm on the right path. I feel like I'm on the right path. And so I think that is one thing that people love about PA school is the fact that it is a family. You know, we don't rank people. You're not competing for the best residency or the best internship at the end. And so it really is like this, we need to succeed together or one class, uh, we need to lift each other up and help each other. And I think that a lot of other schools and programs, they don't have that camaraderie. So I totally agree with you that it's, it's a family, we're all trying to get through it together and we're not trying to push each other down, we're trying to like uplift as a whole into exactly. graduation. Yeah, nobody is left behind. Like that is, that's exactly how I felt. Um, and I loved that. And I feed off of that too. So I was super lucky. Um, and I love I love the University of Kentucky and I just I love their PA program. So. You went to Blue, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was the weakest part of your application and what was the strongest part of your application? Oh gosh. Um into PA so I'm a horrible writer. So when they ask for that personal statement, whoop. Mm-hmm. Like, gosh, I mean, I probably rewrote it a hundred times just because I wanted it to sound like me. That was the other thing. And that's, you know, some of the advice. So I preach students all the time, both um, in undergrad applying to PA programs and then PAs that are getting ready to uh, go leave the nest. And so, you know, those are the types of things that I really encourage is to put a personal spin on it in the fact of what's going to set you apart. When they read that personal statement, I want them to remember you, right? You can add all of the fluff in the world and make it sound, you know, so, you know, exotic and whatever else. But if it doesn't sound like you and you're not bringing that realness to it and like your why, which is one of the reasons, you know, we'll talk about the why later when it came to me opening my own business, that why is going to carry you through every single time. And if you don't need, if you don't know your why, you need to be thinking about why you're applying to PA school or why you're, why are you wanting to do the thing you're wanting to do? Because if you're having to really sit down and think hard about, about what gives you that excitement, encouragement about the next step, it may not be the right step for you. Yeah, those are really wise words that I hope our listeners are listening to because it is true. PA school is super, super tough. You know, you talk to people, it's like a fire hose. Katie calls it torture. <laughs> it's torture. <laughs> it's so much. And, and Lisa's right. If you can't find that why, if you don't have that why, those are the people that don't make it through because it's hard to make it through the, the hard times if you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and you still don't understand why you're here. Um, and so I remember um, in our program, we had someone, uh, remember this, it was like, First week of anatomy, we had anatomy started a week before everything else, so like it's a fabulous thing. And then I think it was at the other campus, but uh, someone withdrew, like day two. And she was like, nope, I I don't really want to work this hard. Like, this is not what I signed up for. And so again, like, I guess just her why wasn't there. And so she wasn't kind of willing to see it through because obviously her why wasn't there. So I think that that is is really important. I love that. Interesting about Elise is that during our didactic year, we had to do a master's project. And so we all had to pick a topic, right? And so Elise uh, eventually got interested in sexual medicine. And so she did her master's project in that theme. 
And so I just wanted to know what sparked that? Like, why did you get interested in that? What sparked that topic? Because you've just come so far in that area. Because there obviously was something in there that made you think, hey, this is for me. We were in the process, right, of thinking. And everybody in our class was doing, like, diabetes, orthopedics, and not that that's not important, but it does not bring me joy. <laughs> let's just, let's I just, love it. I just, I'm like, ugh, I have to talk about like high blood pressure and, or the heart issues and whatever else. So, and I really enjoyed women's health. Um, when we started, started out with our deck gear, I right, really started to resonate with me and just understanding um, reproductive health, women's rights, um, autonomy, um, for authentic selves. And it was just, you know, so for me, I was leaning towards women's, women's health in the get-go. Um, but I was actually talking to my mom on my cell phone and watching some TV, and a Viagra commercial came on for television. And I thought, oh, my gosh, Mom, if there's a blue pill for men, there's got to be a pink pill for women. And so when I was researching at that time, there was nothing. And I got super pissed off. And we were learning about penises and prostates in PA school, but we weren't learning about the clitoris or female orgasm. And I was like, why not? This is part of life. This is part of who we are. And it was always talking about the negative side of things, like don't get pregnant, don't get an STD, all of the like bad, bad stuff on women's. I'm like, absolutely not. There's got to be a lot of pleasure that's going on in this too. When talking to one of my advisors about this whole topic, I had to get special permission. Like this is, I mean, it was really heavy at special permission. Um, my advisor at the time had to consult with several other, the other faculty members. Yeah. I didn't, none of us knew this was going on. <laughs> and they were trying to like steer me in some other directions. I said, no, this is what I want to do. Um, and so we narrowed it down to looking at female flexible function and biologically menopause women. I can't remember the title of my the topic. We're really looking at the sexual dysfunctions that happen through the perimenopause and menopause state mm. with this estrogen and testosterone and what's happening. It was just very interesting to see just even the lack of information um, at that time to support, you know, what I wanted to do my topic on. Oh, and so cool. what was very interesting, too, is I thought that a lot of my articles were going to come from OBGYN journals. And it did not at all. They came from urology journals. So sexual medicine falls under the specialty of urology. Um, so again, I thought that that was just very interesting. And I love having these conversations with my own personal OBGYNs because I'm like, did you have to down there when you did your pelvic exam? Like, you asking me my questions? Am I satisfied in my sex life? Like, let's, let's talk about this. <laughs> I love that. And at that time, too, like this could be a grouping from our didactic year into the clinical year. And so what I did for my, this is one of my electives, is I did a urogynecology rotation over in England. And the reason for me wanting to do that is because the World Association for Sexual Health was going to be in Glasgow, Scotland, overlapping that time. Yeah. So again, I had to get permission. <laughs> Elisa's a troublemaker. Like, <laughs> you are a troublemaker. <laughs> because I had to get permission because it was our very last rotation. And they did not want to do international rotations on the last one. They come back and doing, you know, our exit settings. So I had to get permission for that. But it was the most... Oh my God, I can't even like describe having this thirst of learning about a topic, right? And you're a student and you just, you're getting just like your whistle wet. And then you get to go to this conference, this world conference where there was talks on Tantra and ED medications and surgical interventions and what medications are coming down the road and sex therapy and sex counseling and sex education. It was just like, I mean, I was salivating the whole entire time while I was there. because <laughs> These are my people. <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious. And there's just this like overwhelming feeling of fitting in and this is where you need to be. 
I mean, it was just, it was just amazing, um, that feeling of doing it. So I am just eternally grateful for not only the faculty giving me permission <laughs> to, to do my topic, but then, you know, allowing me that opportunity to really expand on my passion and the specialty that I'm, you know, maximizing, um, world today we need so many more of you yes. because everybody's having sex but nobody's talking about it my god are we all got here goodness <laughs> gracious my parents didn't have sex just twice to make me <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not no no not at all no, no, I love it. It's true because it seems like um, the fact that you had to get special permission, right? So I did mine on, you know, exercise as a therapy for mental right. health, right? right? I didn't have to get special permission. So how come? Like, how come it's still in medicine? It's still a taboo subject in yeah. the medicine, in the one place where everything should be open and you should be able to talk about it. You still had to get special permission. And so it's really, really interesting. And I know things have come. It's been, you know, decade and a half now so I would hope things are, are more opened up now uh, but it is interesting that in a medical field you still people were a little some people were a little uncomfortable with it and weren't sure if it could fly when when you're talking about you're like it's it's sexual dysfunction like why can we not talk about this so Katie's right like everybody's doing it nobody's talking about it and so I love the fact that you're standing for that you say no like let's talk about it now let's figure this out like there are treatments there are ways um, and then it sounds like you found your people over in Scotland so I did. And you know, what's very interesting is I still keep in contact with some of them. So I mean, you know, and that's, I know that's the other fun thing. I think, um, especially within this field, it's so small, right? Mm -hmm. Like you go to an orthopedic conference or you go to an emergency medicine conference and there's, you know, thousands and thousands of people. I go to a sexual medicine conference and there's maybe 200 people, 300 people. Yeah. Right. That's so, so sad. It is so sad. Yes. It is so sad. It's getting better, and it, we're getting bigger, and I'm really excited to see how far the field of sexual health has come over the past probably decade of me practicing, because I've been, it's, it's, I'm going to start crying because I feel like I've been such instrumental and a part of all of the changes that have happened. Yes. So other things, too, I don't, did you get, you didn't get to go to Atlanta for the AAPA conference mm -hmm. um, when we were in Paysville, so one of the reasons I wanted to go down, well, it was in Atlanta, so right, it was like a six-hour drive, and um, I could, you know, I could go home, essentially, and then drive down to Atlanta, and no big deal, but one of the main reasons I really wanted to go to that is because there was this medication that was on the cusp that was in, you know, phase three clinical trials for women's sexual health, and that was Levanterin, and it was by a pharmaceutical company called um, Bominger Eingelheimer, and they had this huge display um, in the exhibit hall. And I, I remember talking to so many people and so many reps there and like, when is this all coming down? When is it coming down the pipeline? Right. And that was back in 2010. I think that yeah. was France or whatever else. And it wasn't until June of 2015 where we had Addy, which is the very first medication that came out for women's hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is the same one, which is ethylbanserin, right? So it had to go through that whole process. Um, still, and we just, and we're still fighting today um, in order to get that medication more recognition and get people prescribing it, um, and just having the conversation. You know, it's the it's the biggest yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. And now I know, like a lot of um, insurance companies cover like a PD meds, uh, erectile dysfunction meds for men. Uh, is that covered for women? Do you see or is the that look a fight? Do you see the look on my face? I get so pissed off talking to insurance companies. Right. So you know, Viagra came out in '95. And it actually, they had a 20-year patent. So, I mean, it wasn't until 
early 2000s, somewhere there where there, it had now become a generic um, medication. And even then it was still really difficult to get it covered, but we had a medication. Um, and so a lot of these insurance companies now are covering EC medications, um, but we're finding it really difficult and it's cost prohibitive for a lot of these women's sexual health. And women still do not have an FDA approved testosterone, so supplement uh, hormone replacement mm-hmm. in order to feel good. Right, testosterone is more than just libido. Testosterone is making your muscles work, sleep, mood, energy, um, and making sure that again, brain fog, mental health. As you know, and people often forget too that uh, your ovaries make testosterone, and women have ten times more testosterone in their bodies than they do estrogen. So again, it's just it's just knowledge. It's just having these conversations. But you know, for so often we've just researched men, 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 because women are too complicated. There's too many hormonal issues that go along with them. So, I mean, I just want to punch somebody in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. So, I have been in my specialty since day one of leaving PA school, right? And I know that a lot of other, like, PA students don't get that opportunity to do that. But I had actually worked for a urologist when I was in high school. And so, he he got wind of what I was doing. I worked for him for almost two years running urines, answering phones, doing some upfront clerical stuff, pulling charts, because we had paper charts back then. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> yeah, the good old days. And so, um, but he had, uh, my grandmother was a patient of his, too. And so I just, and again, it's a small town, so we all know each other and everything else. He got kind of got wind of what I was doing, and I had I had applied to other school or other um, physicians that we wanted to stay in Kentucky had reached out to the, a lot of the urology offices um, in the area to try to find a job. And I thought, okay, well, if I can't, you know, find, you know, something in my, my field, I'll go into family medicine with a focus on sexual health or I'll go into emergency medicine and I'll be with all, like, the prolonged directions or, like, I'll figure out something, you know. Figure out a way. <laughs> you know, again, I, things happen for reasons. And um, he called me, I guess it was probably – May, right before we graduated, um, he had called me up and said, hey, I hear, you know, you're doing some focused on you know, female female urology, female sexual health. Do you want to come back home and do this? And I was like, I wasn't going to pass this up. Right. Yeah. So we had bought a house in Kentucky. My mom was going to sell her house to move to Kentucky because my brother was up there, too. So it was just like, wait, 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 everybody stop. <laughs> We're coming back home. Yeah. That's what it. That's what we did. So I, I took the job. I absolutely loved it from day one. Now, granted, I will say I cried for the first two weeks every single day. It's hard. It like, is. This transition, nobody really teaches you this transition from being a PA student to being mm-hmm. like a and like it's being terrifying. Holy moly! I still remember. I mean, crying on the phone to my husband because he was still in Kentucky. I was living home with my mom. Like at 26 years old, I'm like moved back home. <laughs> You know, career. I was like, I can't do this. What is happening? And you know, eventually you get you get over it. And you just trudge through. And I think everybody has that those terrifying, oh my gosh, moments. Um, you know, there's still times where I'm going, Am I really doing this? Did I do the right thing? Did I prescribe the right medication? And you know, we're ten years in, so yeah, the terrifying moments get a little bit easier, but you know, they're still there. <laughs> it's so true, though, and people don't really talk about that. And- Katie and I have discussed this before that yeah. it took me over a year before I felt really, really comfortable, yeah. totally autonomous on my own when my physician was on like vacation, whatever, to make these decisions like, do we need to do surgery on this or is this aligned well enough or whatever it was. And still there are some days when I'm like, I'm so glad I've got 
other people I can talk to and, you know, can bounce things off of. Cause sometimes I'm like, I still, I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's something you're right. That's not taught, talked about enough about how to transition. Do you think that still having that in the back of your head is very healthy as a PA? Because once you lose that, then you're in danger of having a harmful outcome or a bad outcome with the patient. Well, and not knowing your scope, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's the thing I talk to a lot of PAs about. And, and physicians do this too, right? They've got to understand just because they are in the field of like urology doesn't mean that the urologists that I work with know all of the urology procedures. You know, they only maybe specialize in prostate stuff or kidney stuff, mm -hmm. you know, so they ha you have to recognize, you know, they're practicing within their scope too. And you start to feel uncomfortable. You've got to really check in with yourself and go, where is this coming from? Is it because I don't have the resources? Is it because this patient is really sick and they need somebody, I need, I need to consult somebody else to help me with what's going on? So you're totally right, um, is listening yes, to those times. Yeah. Because yeah. if you don't, it can, be, it can be really harmful. Yeah, it's like that voice telling you, like you said, like if you're uncomfortable or the voice is telling you something's wrong, you need to stop and check in with yourself. I like the way you said that. And like be like, okay, hey, wait, why am I feeling this way? Because uh, it's when you ignore, ignore it, you're right. Is that when, you know, you have to have to worry about those patient outcomes. So, oh, yeah. Listen, I was just, I just renewed my ACLS today. Knock on wood, and I said this multiple times in class, I've never performed CPR on anybody, nor will I ever give epinephrine or amiodarone or <laughs> I will never be giving this. So I want the, the answer on the test, one of my you know, multiple questions, always to be seek, like, a, you know, seek other advice. Like, okay, my answer, I will never be running a code. Like, I know. Call the code team. <laughs> call code team. Call 911. Like, that's always going to be my answer. <laughs> so true. So true. Terrifying <laughs> moments. Nope. Don't want to do it. Nope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening to part one of Elisa's interview. Stay tuned for part two coming up next week. Also, we have so many resources to help you get into PA school and then survive and excel in PA school. From personal statement and CASPA app reviews and feedback, mock interviews, an application to acceptance course, and a PA school membership with everything you need to rock out didactic and clinical year, you can find it all in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.